break from the working through Hebrews, and we're going to be just reading some of the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. And what I'd like to do is actually read a, a large chunk of scripture. I'd like to read most of the story, and then I will just go back through it, making comments about, you know, what it means and what God wants us to take from the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll start in verse 18. Calvary Chapel, these are the very words of God. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the star, for the child, sorry. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. 
Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Father, I am so grateful for your word, your, your reliable word. And in it is, is captured and revealed the truth and the wisdom of God. Father, I pray that you would help this morning for each one of us to have soft hearts and seeing eyes and hearing ears and to hear what you are saying to your church. Father, that we would not be like some who um, use the word of God and look into it as a mirror, but go away and forget who they are. But instead that we would know who you are and we would see who we are. And that through this, we'd be able to respond to you with worship, to fulfill joyfully our duties before you. Father, I pray that you would show us and give us Jesus this morning through this time and through this message, through your presence in the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Bible has a funny way of understatement. It has a funny way of being very understated. And so you can't read too fast through things. Um, it, it announces Jesus, or it, it chronicles the birth of the Son of God by just saying, um, let me find it here. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So the time when Jesus was actually born was just kind of like, well, they didn't actually consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born, and then they named him Jesus. Which to me strikes me as an insane understatement, because that was the event when the creator of the universe came into the world and breathed air that he had designed and created out of nothing, and was held by human arms which he had designed in his own image according to his own wisdom, in a universe in which he designed the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and the function of time and everything else is all his brilliance and power on display. And it just says, yeah, when he was born, they named him Jesus. So the scripture has this way of being really understated. Um, it's kind of like some people hide their treasure out in, op- in the open because no one would ever think that you would leave a pile of diamonds just on top of your mantle place that's worth 50,000 bucks. So they would never steal it because they would just think, nobody just leaves gigantic treasure out in the open. You know, these gold, co- these gold coins must be the chocolate-filled kind. Nobody would just leave this in a, in a jar on their kitchen counter. You know, a wise man hides true treasure out in plain sight because no one thinks to take it. And that's what God does. He just says, oh yeah, and when he was born, uh, they named him Jesus. But this is the craziest, most insane, most wonderful, most profound moment. The time when God became a little baby in the world. And nothing has been the same since. It changed everything. It changed everything. Um, no one can say anymore that God's far away. No one can say anymore that you can't know God. No, he became a person and he lived a life and God supernaturally recorded his life four times because it was so important. It deserved four histories. And so everything changed with the birth of Jesus. And I just want you to think about this. You know, you can actually buy a flight and go out to Bethlehem. Um, it might be a little dangerous. 
But you can go and you can buy a ticket. You can go to Bethlehem where the Son of God became, was born. Uh, we don't know, but the way the world works, somebody right now could breathe in an air molecule that had been inside of the body of Christ. He could have inhaled and then exhaled carbon dioxide, and that carbon dioxide could have floated in the atmosphere for the last 2,000 years, just floating, 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 going up and down, being blown around the world with all the cycles of weather, and could have found its way into Steinbeck and then caught it. The same air breathed out by the Son of God. The same dirt stepped on by him. Um, A plant fertilized by one of his nappies could have grown and been eaten. And we just, this is how the world works. It's all still here. Except for his body, which went to heaven. His interaction with the world is all still here. The creator of the universe. Something amazing happened in it. It wasn't just that he came to be with us. He came in such a way that he welcomed into his existence human weakness. Um, I think if somebody were going to write this story nowadays, they would just sort of, it would have been, the coming of the Lord would have been something like a scene from the Terminator where there just would have been, you know, this ball of lightning and then Jesus standing there with being able to do the pectoral dance. He'd be so ripped. And um, because we love strength, right? We love power. We, 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 we can't imagine that the creator of the universe would actually pass through a birth canal um, and would actually um, wet himself and and pass his digested food just like we did and need a mom and cry for milk and need to get wrapped in swaddling cloths or else he would get cold. Uh, we, that's hard for us to even, what? That's, you're doing it all wrong. You know, the director would be like, cut, cut, cut. We need a script rewrite. This is all wrong. This isn't going to sell at the box office. This is going to bomb. Um, nobody wants to see um, an Iron Man movie where the armor is made out of plaster scene. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so, but Jesus did it. He came and he became, he took a body. He became a true man. He didn't give up anything it meant to be God. Uh, He still is the eternal second person of the Trinity, still is the eternal word of God, still is the son, but he took a body onto himself, a true human body. And uh, he welcomed weakness into himself in ways that are just so profound. So number one, how, how did Jesus welcome weakness? Well, he, he received a body and not every kind of body. So let me just walk you through this, okay? Um, having a body means that you have to humble yourself because you didn't get to choose the body you got, right? There was no time up in heaven when, when an angel showed up with the checklist to your spirit and just said, okay, it's time to pick your body. How high do you want to be? 6'2"? Well, we're kind of out of long bones today, so we're going to just give you a 5'10". I hope that's okay. Um, that, how much muscles do you want? Uh, you know, well, we can, we can work on that. Okay, you want lots of muscles? Well, you know, you know the, the person that we're going to give you to be your mom couldn't handle that much bulk, so we'll give you a Pastor Rob body instead. And um, male or female, okay? Well, it depends. And, and where do you want to be born? How about, do you want to be an African born in Canada, or do you want to be a Canadian born in Africa? We can, well, you don't get to choose. You never got to choose. Um, God picked, right? And so we... we we have to submit to the body we were given. And uh, we can tweak it a little bit sometimes. You know, sometimes we buy hair dye. Um, sometimes some doctors can help us out with stuff. I, I occasionally run a sharp piece of metal on the space in between my eyebrows. Um, just, you know, 
I'm tending the garden. You know, you've got to pluck the weeds. You don't want them to uh, interfere with the beauty of the flowers that are supposed to be where they are supposed to be. And, um, and that's not what I'm talking about. That God does want us to tend the garden of our bodies, but the, the, the skin color, the eye color, the hair color, the height, the genetic potential, all that stuff, um, God chooses. And we have to accept it. And we say, yes, Lord. And Jesus had to say, yes, Lord, to his body. Whatever it was, was he fat or thin? We'll find out. Was he handsome? Well, the scripture talks about him not being super appealing in his appearance. Um, he was just, he was a Jewish guy in a Roman world. And that was God's choice. Uh, he also had to submit to being born in time. Okay? Um, which typically... Um, there's two types of cultures in the world. There's types of cultures that think if something's old, it's really great. And there's types of cultures that think if something's old, it's really dumb. Which culture do you live in? Okay. When's the last time you bought a box of cereal that said old and not improved on it? When's the last time you saw a car advertised that said the all old Pontiac whatever? It just doesn't sell. The, the all old, no anti-lock brakes, windows that you have to crank. Like, I'm not paying for this. That's not our culture. And, uh, and so Jesus was born into a world where people would despise him just for having lived 2,000 years ago. And his words are just out of date. And how can you say we need to obey the, the scriptures because they're 2,000 plus years old? And, and that, it's just too old. It's just old. And that's, that's a weakness, to have lived in a certain time um, and to be able to be rejected just because you're not around anymore is a weakness. And people despise that weakness in our culture very, very heavily. Um, Jesus has a bit of an advantage on us that he rose from the dead and has been alive for those last 2,000 years and ruling the world, but one day we won't. And so we will, we will pass away and the people who come after us will have every opportunity to reject us just for being dead like our culture does for previous generations. And he also willingly took on the weakness of being able to die. When Herod tried to kill him in chapter 2, it wasn't his time, but it was his mission to eventually die. That was, the, that was the main point, to become a man, a human being just like us, to start a new humanity, humanity, but the point was to die, and not of old age. The point was to come and to die. And so he, he took, by the will of God, uh, true human weakness onto himself, and it changed everything. We live in a world where the creator of the universe came and was born and had to run away and then eventually was crucified. And that is amazing. And you can't ignore that. But let's talk about Joseph next. Joseph found himself in a pickle. All right. Um, getting married is always complicated. But it's especially complicated by finding out that your fiancé is pregnant and you know it wasn't you. Okay, that's, that's complicated. That's really complicated. And so Joseph has a decision to make. And I'm going to get confused as I try to explain this, but um, there's an interesting story of Joseph making the wrong decision by making the right decision. So God makes him make the right decision by making the decision that he thought was the wrong decision. Okay, so he, he's thinking to himself... I want to honor the Lord, and I want to do what's right. And so I need to um, divorce. Um, in, the, in the first century in 
Israel, when you got engaged, you were as good as married. You just waited much longer to have the ceremony and the honeymoon, okay? The, the engagement was marriage quality um, commitment. And that's why it's called a divorce in Scripture. He said, I'm going to have to divorce her for this. But So he's a righteous guy. He says, the, the right thing to do is to not proceed with this marriage. You know, It wouldn't please the Lord for me to connect myself permanently with this woman who I thought was something, but now it turns out she isn't. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a quiet divorce. You know, legally he could have, you know, had a very public exposing of what was going on. And there could have been a lot of trouble if he wanted to indulge some sort of rage or something like that. But he didn't want to. He wanted to, as much as possible, not be involved in the trouble or causing her trouble. And so he said, I'm just going to quietly back out of this thing. And that was the right decision. So the scripture says he was a just man and he was going to do this. This was his plan. He prayed it through, thought it through. This was the right choice. But an angel comes and says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife because you're about to make the wrong choice. Okay. She actually didn't have an affair. She actually is not any way unrighteous. The Lord came to her and said, this is the plan. You are going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit. And she, with faith beyond faith, um, just said, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll do what you want, even though this is probably going to ruin my life. Um, So she's a wonderful lady, and this child is by the Holy Spirit, and so take her as your wife. That's the right thing to do. And so we have this interesting situation where Joseph wanted to do the right thing, and it was going to be the wrong thing, so God showed him the right thing, so he did what was the wrong thing because it was the right thing. Confused yet? Um, Welcome to the real world. Welcome to following God it can be confusing. But what we're supposed to take away from the story of Joseph is as long as you want to do the right thing in God's sight, he will make you do the right thing, even when it's different than what you thought you were going to do. Okay? Because we can get confused. What's the right thing to do? We can get, we can get worried. Well, if I don't do this, is my life ruined? If and I don't do that, is God going to forsake me? And if I don't go to this school or get this job, or if this relationship doesn't work out, is my life ruined? No, 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 no. Wherever you're at, Pray, seek the Lord, aim to do what is the righteous thing, and God will take care of the details. Even if it means sending an angel to say, do the opposite of what you were planning, because you didn't understand the situation. Clear? Okay, so Joseph's situation is meant to just make us have confidence in the Lord. Do what appears to be the right thing to do, and God will lead you through it. And, uh, And this is a great thing, okay? God wanted to give... Jesus, an adoptive father. God wanted Jesus to have an adopted father. If he wanted to, he could have just made Mary with child and taken care of her. Okay, that is in the realm of the possible. Yes, <laughs> she's already give birth to the son of God. So taking care of her as a single mom, no problem. But he waited until she was already engaged in order to put Jesus in there because he wanted Jesus to have an adopted father. And he wanted him to have a righteous adopted father. All right. And so even from the story of Joseph, Joseph, we see that God loves men who are willing to become adoptive fathers to children. What kind of father did the son of God have? Physically, he had someone who was willing to adopt someone else's child to be his firstborn son. That was a big deal. And so we're supposed to hear, we're supposed to hear something. God loves men who are willing to adopt other people's kids to be their own. That is the kind of father he gave his own son, Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving on. 
So God sorts out Joseph and Mary to the point where they're going to stay together and have this baby. And, um, and then all of a sudden, these three wise men show up in Jerusalem and turn not only Herod's household, but the entire city upside down. Excuse me. You guys thought that the um, American reporters were good at letting you know everything that was going on politically. Um, the gossip engine in Israel was in full force. And so as soon as those wise men showed up, um, everybody in town knew that a king had been born and not in Herod's house, who was the king. Usually when a new king is born in a country, they're born to the present king in that country. And if they're not, then there's really big trouble. And so these three wise men show up and they start saying, we're looking for the king and everybody knows that Herod hasn't had a baby lately. And so there's a lot of trouble. And Herod already has sons who are supposed, one of them supposed to be king. Herod is a bit of a bad guy. I think he killed one of his wife and one of his kids one time because they were kind of plotting against him. So it was a bit of a mess. It was a lot of a mess. But these three wise men show up. And when we think wise men, it's kind of easy to think of, about, you know, dudes that just have wa- smart-sounding a- answers to questions, you know, philosophers from universities. They were actually more like Gandalfs and Dumbledores. Um, they are magi. In the scripture, they're called magi, and that's where we get our word magician from. So, yes, they travel in camels. Yes, they had big hairdos. And they, some of them may have actually had magic wands and and cast a spell in their life. They're, they're, they're magi, okay? So let's not sanitize this thing too much. They're Gandalfs. They're Radagast the Browns. They're Saruman's. They're riding into town and causing trouble. And, uh, and what they have been doing is that, you know, uh, it was common for um, the wise men in ancient cultures to be trying to read the heavens in order to discern the will of the gods, quote, unquote. And so that's what um, Daniel is dealing with in the book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar has his wise men and he says, come and tell me my dreams. And they would typically go like read the stars or maybe kill an animal and try to read its entrails or something like that. And they're just totally out of their depth. They can't do anything. But these guys have been reading the stars and they, one way or another, I don't know exactly how it works and I'm happy not to know how it works, um, God has worked with them in their paganism to reveal to them that they, he actually has um, conceived and given birth to the, the king of Israel at that time. So they got it right. Okay, And so I'm assuming most of the time the pagans got it wrong, but this time they got it right. And they, they were men of faith enough to actually get on their camels and go for a journey. Um, you know, God working with them. And so, you know, and so I'll just keep going here. I don't want to confuse myself um, too much. That's your job to be confused and my job to at least pretend that I know what I'm doing here. Um, that was a little joke. Thank you. And um, so they get at least to, to Jerusalem looking for this king. And then, but they don't know where to go from there. And so what's the next thing God gives them? Okay, first he starts with a star in the heavens, which is just kind of like reading, reading the created world. The next thing that God gives to them is um, the word of God. Okay, so they show up to Herod and Herod goes and consults the scriptures and says, actually, and the, the scribes, they're, they know the real deal. Okay, they don't go and look for Jesus, but they know what the scripture says. The scripture says that the king, the Messiah, the Christ, is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. This is a quotation from Malachi, I believe, and and so he tells them, the book says Bethlehem, and then he kind of starts this this political intrigue by saying, you go find out, come back and tell me, and then I'll come and worship too. Hey, 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 not really, and. Uh, 
And so, but they, they obeyed the scripture, okay? First they looked to the stars, and then they obeyed the scripture, and they did what the scripture told them to do. And while they're obeying the scripture, God meets them with a supernatural act, okay? He takes that star that they saw in the heaven, and all of a sudden, this star that was in the heaven is leading them. I don't know if you've ever gone outside at night, but stars don't lead people like that. If you're an ancient mariner, you're out on the seven seas, and you've got your little thingamajig, what's it called, Tony? You've got your sextant out there. You can get led by the stars. It will tell you roughly where you are in the ocean. But when you're walking around um, a few kilometers, like they were doing in, in the journey from, um, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, stars don't lead you unless something weird is going on. And something weird was going on. Okay, God made this star move so that it would dwell upon a house. And if you think about it, okay, um, you can sometimes line up a star to be above a house, right? Okay, you pick a bright one on the horizon and you find the right place so that it's right above your house. And you can say, oh, there's a star above my house. But if you move, what does that star do? Well, it appears to move too because it's in the universe out there a bazillion light years away and the the house is now over there. So the star is still over there, house is over here and you go back here and the house stays in the same place and okay, now they line up again but then if you move over here they don't line up again. And here are these wise men traveling and the star is always where it's supposed to be, above the house. That's not normal. That's not natural. And so we see this kind of progression of revelation as God is leaving, leading these unbelievers to Christ. It starts with, he's made himself known in creation. It goes to, he's revealed himself in the word. And then it finally um, culminates with a supernatural act of saying, yes, this is the Christ. And that is a picture of actually what we go through too. Okay? We are born into a world where God has made himself known. And he has revealed himself so truly through the world, through his sun, through his moon, through the universe through animals and primarily through us that nobody here can say, I didn't know there was a God because God will say, didn't you see the stuff I made? Like, did you really just think there was an explosion a long time ago and then you existed? Do you think that happens? Like go home, uh, fill your house full of natural gas, turn the stove on and then find out if Beethoven's fifth symphony comes out of the explosion. You know what I mean? Find out if all of a sudden the Oompa Loompas just fly out of your house blowing up. That's not how it works. I made this stuff. And we're supposed to look at God's creation and go, who did this? He must be amazing. I have to get to know him. That's what God says. And then he's also revealed himself through the word. But we have already met Herod, who knows that the scriptures are the word of God, but he never comes to Christ. There actually needs to be an event, a movement of God between hearing God's word and seeing his creation and actually coming to true faith in Jesus. And it's a supernatural act, and we call it being born again. Where God actually changes who you are. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't feel it. But you know it's happened if Jesus is precious to you. You know it's happened if you see him and you want to bow down and worship him like the wise men did in the days of old. And if that's who you are, saints, I want you to know you are a miracle. Okay, You have received a supernatural act to know that Jesus is real and precious. God has done something just like he did for the wise men. And the wise men come to Jesus and they they give him their gifts. 
gold and frankincense and myrrh, kingly gifts. And somebody, some people have observed before that in one sense, each one of these gifts is prophetic. Gold, kind of a prophetic picture of the king, kingliness of Jesus. Like when a king is born, you give him things that are precious and give him the gold. And the frankincense, which is used in incense for burning and worship, it kind of is a prophetic picture of Jesus in his high priestly role. And the myrrh was part of what people would use when they were creating a spice embalming for dead bodies. And so you can read in the Gospel of John that Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped his body in myrrh and other spices to prepare him for burial. And so there's this picture of Jesus' life even in these gifts. Gold, you are the king. Frankincense, you are the great high priest who will sacrifice yourself. And myrrh, you will die so that you can be raised from the dead again. Let's talk about Herod for a bit. So these wise men are warned by God to not go back to Herod. And Joseph is warned by God to not stick around because Herod's going to seek the child. And so we have um, the story of Herod. Have you ever just taken a second to imagine what it would be like to be a Herod? I do do this sometimes. It's not fun. Um, Herod knows that there is a child born who is supposed to be the new king. I don't know if he actually believed that this was the Messiah. Um, There were many people who pretended to be the Messiah. So Herod may have just been thinking, oh, here we go again. I need to put a stop to this before there's a revolt and there's more unrest and the Romans get upset at me. I'm supposed to be ruling this place and I want to stay in power. And so I need to crush zealots and stop rebellions before they happen in order for Caesar to stay happy with me. I think Herod, as far as my historical background goes, I I think that Herod and Caesar were good friends. And so he wants to keep Caesar happy and stay in his place. And so he may have just been thinking, here they go again. I need to stop this. Um, And so he, he formed this plot to find out who the child was. Okay. And I think probably what it would have happened if I were Herod, (laughs) shudder, would be find out exactly who the baby is and then get one of my spies to make that baby disappear quiet, clean, problem solved. All that anybody would hear about is, is one mom wondering where her son is. And maybe even if he were good, the spy could maybe like, like Joseph of old, leave some bloodstained clothes around and people could just think that maybe a lion caught him or something like that. You could, you could make this disappear. No problem. No problem. But, um, Herod wants to trick the wise men, but God tricks Herod, makes the wise men go a different way. And now Herod is fuming, not only because the child is, and I I think it's because his plan is foiled, you know? Now I have to do something about this that people will hear about. Now I can't do this quiet. Now I can't do this clean. Now I have to send my soldiers, and it's going to be messy, and there's going to be trouble. And so he sends his soldiers out, and they not only kill all the kids around Bethlehem, but they kill all the surrounding countryside as well. And for me, this is another one of those times where the Bible is just painfully subtle. Like, it's not just Bethlehem Church. It was the surrounding region. This took them hours and maybe days to just go all around to all the little villages around the town of Bethlehem and be like, any kids here? It's gruesome. And it's not pleasant to think about, which is why, um, 
you know, they don't include Herod's soldiers in nativity scenes. You know, here's our nativity scene. It's a really good one. Um, it looks really high quality. It's a little bit worse for wear. You can see that Bel- Belshazzar here is missing his right hand. And uh, lots of people are missing finger- fingers. Thank you, children of Calvary Chapel. Um, throughout the ages, none of our kids. This was a while ago. And uh, you can see the shepherd over here who looks like, let's check this out. He has like bagpipes. So obviously, O Holy Night was not written while he was anywhere nearby. And, um, or Silent Night, sorry, Silent Night, that's the one. And the wise men are here, and they, you know, as far as I read scripture, they probably weren't there at the same time. The shepherds were there uh, right after Jesus was born, but it sounds like the wise men started their journey right after Jesus was born and probably took a while to get there. And that's why Herod didn't say, just kill all the infants. He says, everybody two and under. He's trying to catch that age group between when the, sh- the wise men first saw the star and um, when they arrived in Jerusalem. But there's no soldiers There's no soldiers, because we don't want to think about it. And, and so I, I, I wrestle with the Lord, and I, I ask him, like, why do you include this? I don't, I don't remember Luke talking about it. Mark doesn't talk about it. John doesn't talk about it. And I think the connection for me, as I think about it, is it goes back to Jesus' name, okay? This, this is the gospel where um, Matthew makes a big deal of Jesus' name. He says to Joseph, you have to name him Jesus. And Jesus in Hebrew means Yahshua, the Lord is salvation. And then the angel explains to Joseph why Jesus has to have that name. Because he is here to save his people from their sins. Okay? And when you're in a culture that doesn't believe in sin, kind of like ours, and when you're in a church culture which doesn't think sin's super, super too bad, like ours, um, it can be easy to be like, oh yeah, sure, sure, he, he forgives sins. That's, that's great. Good, good job, Jesus. And so what this story of Jesus has is it has a demonstration in the story of itself about what sin is like. The sin that's in my heart that I'm getting rescued from by Jesus, the sin that's in your heart that you are or need to be rescued from by Jesus, what is sin like? Well, sin left on its own is an insane king who is willing to murder hundreds of baby boys because he wants to and he can. That's what sin's like. That's what my sin is like. And it reminds me, it says to me, Rob, you need to know your, yourself. Left to yourself in, in the right situation, under the right circumstances, with the right parents and the right political power, you'd be a Herod, no problem. You could get angry enough, you could get offended enough, you could just give the nod to the captain of your guards, make these people disappear. I don't care how, make it look like an accident, I don't want any blowback, make it so that no, the police could never trace it back to me. You could be a Herod, Rob. Because you have the same sin in your heart as Herod did. Which is why I needed to send Jesus. To save you from yourself. 
And there's a part inside of me, I don't know if it's the same for you, that just wants to say, it's not the same. It's not the same, Lord. No, no, no. I'm, it's different. Okay, it's different. Between me and Hitler, it's different. Between me and Herod, it's different. Between me and Stalin, it's different. Okay, between me and Ted Bundy, it's different. They're, they're different. They're not the same. I'm not the same. I'm different. And uh, I was just reminded as I was processing through this, the story of Abraham and Abimelech from Genesis chapter 20. And if you remember the story, this is the second time that Abraham's wife is taken by a king. And there's nothing Abraham can do. They said they were brother and sister. The king's like, she's pretty pretty. I'm going to take her into my harem. And Abraham's just out of luck. He can't do anything. But God shows up. He's made a promise to Abraham, so he's going to rescue him. And he shows up to Abimelech and says, you're a dead man because she is somebody else's wife. And Abimelech in the dream starts to protest. He says, no, 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 wait, hey, wait, why would you, why would you do this? I'm innocent. I, I didn't touch her. I didn't know that this was the situation. Would you really kill me and my people over this? Like, I'm innocent. And, and it's the Lord's response that gets me, okay? The Lord in the dream says back to Abimelech, yes. That's in your right. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. I know that you didn't mean to steal somebody else's wife. And I know that you haven't, you haven't done anything with her physically. He says, I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And that's just that line. Yeah, I know you didn't, you didn't touch her. But it was, it was me that kept you from sinning against me. And as I process this, I just think we're supposed to know that this God does this. Okay, why, why aren't unbelievers as bad as they could be? God's restraining them. Through situations, through life, through the, their conscience, through fear of the police, through pride, through many, many different ways. He is constantly restraining us from being as bad as we could be. But we're not supposed to turn around and say to the Lord, I'm not as bad as other people. We're supposed to say, oh my goodness, thank you so much for restraining me. It could have been so much worse. And you get the credit for how not bad I've been. Because left to my own self, I would be a Herod. If I had the money, I had the power, I had the soldiers, and I was afraid of the future, why not? Who would stop me? crazy, eh? But God thwarts Herod as he always will sooner or later. And he saves his son. Okay, so what I'm saying is sin is that bad and our sin is that bad and we need to get saved. And we need to be saved. And I trust that many of you do do know the Lord and you are. So I'm not trying to retroactively guilt trip you. What I am saying is Jesus is amazing that he would save us when our sin is as bad as Herod's or could be, when that's what we could be like, that he would come and risk everything and then be punished and be tortured and then be crucified in our place to stand under the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could die in that wrath in him and then be raised from the dead in Christ with him and come into a new life and have God as our father. That is amazing. Thank you for coming, Jesus. 
So what can we do? For me, what I want to take away from this, this revelation, okay? The Son of God humbled himself, became a child, was so vulnerable that he needed a mom and a stepdad to protect him. And he needed to run away when Herod was going to come to attack him. It just makes me think, um, Jesus often wants to, us to turn around and treat other people like they were Jesus. We can show that we're grateful to Jesus and that we love Jesus by how we treat other people. And so what I want to do is I want to come out of this just saying to myself, every child is Jesus. 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 Because if I love a child with the love I have for Jesus, Jesus receives it. Okay. Um, he does teach us this. In Matthew chapter 25, he says, and I'll summarize it for you. At the end of time, I will go to people and I will say, thank you for clothing me. Thank you for feeding me. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for visiting me when I was in prison. And the people will all say, I don't remember doing that, Jesus. You were kind of in heaven and you kind of weren't here. And I was just doing my thing in church. And he'll say to them, every time you did these things to the least of my brothers, you were doing it to me. Okay. Jesus taught us to think like that. You can love somebody else with the love you have for Jesus. And Jesus is in heaven going, thank you for doing that for me. And so what I'm doing for myself is I'm just remembering every child is Jesus. Every child is Jesus. My kids are Jesus and I can love them. I can be Joseph to them. I can be the wise man to them. And I don't want to be Herod to them. Because every child is Jesus. Every child at church is Jesus. Every child in rwanda is jesus you know every child is jesus uh, and practically i was sitting in my office and i was like i want to do something for someone who some kid who is really like jesus and i was reminded can we get that last slide there that there's a family in our church that's got a gift for connecting with immigrant families they're just and a missional and gifted in it. And there's that family. They're not here this service. They were the other one. They don't, need, they don't need stuff from us, okay? But they connect with people who are living in another country with kids more than I do. Because God's called them to it. So I talked with them and just said, do you guys know any families that we maybe could treat like Jesus this year? And she has this whole long list. I was like, oh, overwhelmed. But one of them, there's a... There's a family from Kazakhstan who's new to Canada and they're about to have their second child. And, and I was just like, wouldn't it be great if we could do a love mob for them? Have you ever heard of a love mob? Have you heard of a flash mob before? You see them on Facebook, you know, you're, they're in Times Square, or Times Central Station, and everyone's just doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like doing, doing the dance and thing and shuffling together. And they've obviously practiced this before. This is my idea of Broadway dancing. Is anybody impressed? <laughs> And they're singing, you know, let it go, let it go. And then everyone's just like, what is this? This is amazing. I wasn't expecting this. Everyone had planned it beforehand, and then they executed it to everybody else's surprise. And so somebody came up with this idea of a love mob where people just get together and they plan to have like a big, intensive loving on somebody. You know, words of encouragement, gifts, um, gift cards, and just plan it and then all at once, not just spread out over time, but just, just love mob. Wouldn't it be great? I thought to myself, I said, self, wouldn't it be great if you could 
find a family that was actually a lot like Jesus' family in another country, probably here because it wasn't so great back where they were at, and with a kid, some young kids that could used to have some wise men show up with gold and frankincense and myrrh and just bless them. Now, unfortunately, because of Canadian charitable financial laws, I can't say we're we're going to do this from the front up here. And I totally respect the law, and I, well, maybe not totally, I'm going to do my best to walk a fine line. And, um, And I appreciate it very much, what people are doing. The laws are there to to keep money from being funneled to terrorism, essentially. But we can't just get up here and say, let's give specifically to this cause. You can only give generally. So I can't do that. I I can't say to you, can you pray about how you could help love mob this family and then talk to them about it? Okay, they're in the phone book. And if you don't know who they are, Lisa and Tony do. And I know you know who they are. And you can talk to me too. Um, I, I can't say... Wouldn't it be so awesome if you were a non-Christian in a foreign country and a church just says, we just want to treat you, your, your kids like Jesus this Christmas? I can't, I can't say that. I just can't. And so I won't just say that. I won't. I won't. I refuse. I see you trying to tempt me over there, Greg and Kim. You're like, just do it, Rob. Push the limit. Be a rebel. I'm not going to. I refuse. So I won't encourage you just to to give again this Christmas and to give to the um, impronounceable initiative that Lisa's talking about. Give overseas and give at home. I won't, I won't say do both. I won't say to you, you just definitely won't regret it and you won't miss it. I won't remind you that the Lord says, those who give to the poor lend to the Lord meaning he knows how to pay back with interest people who lend to him. I won't. I refuse. So I'll just pray. Father, I just thank you so much. I just love your word, God. You're just so brilliant. The Bible you've given us, it, to me, is just flawless. And I'm so grateful for just the testimony of Mary and Joseph and their in, almost incomprehensible to me faith to receive Jesus into her body and into his family. Father, the the awesome journey of the wise men that you led them from the creation to scripture by a supernatural act so that they would come and be ecstatic worshipers of your son and giving immense treasure to him to worship and honor him. Father, Father, the, uh, the pain of just reading and thinking about the slaughter of the innocents and that that happens in our world. It happens in Canadian hospitals and clinics sometimes, Lord, people just disappearing, just disappearing. And we do that. God, help us. And Lord, would you stir our hearts? I'm sure as, as, as people have shared different ways, Lord, everybody here has opportunities, but Lord, would you help us to, to treat the children like Jesus? That's my desire. I want that for me. And I pray that you would be blessed as we seek you in faith, knowing, Father, that even if we set out in the wrong direction for the right reason, you know how to get us where you want us to go. And I thank you and worship you. Amen.